Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm James Rogers, and this is the History Hit World Wars podcast a podcast dedicated to that turbulent period in history between 1914 and 1945. In this episode, we're talking about spies. Their names have gone down in infamy. McLean, Burgess, Philby and Blunt, the British members of the KGB spy ring that infiltrated the UK intelligence services and passed top-secret information to the Soviets during the Second World War and into the Cold War. But how did the Soviets get so good at spying? How did their spy network spread? How effective were they? And when did this spying game first begin? Well, to tell us all, we're joined by Harvard University's Calder Walton. Calder is Assistant Director of the Harvard Applied History Project, and he's author of the award-winning Empire of Secrets, British Intelligence, the Cold War, and the Twilight of Empire. Enjoy. Hi, Calder. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. How are you doing today? I think the last time that we saw each other, we spent some time in a bar in Boston discussing Soviet espionage. Are you still able to go to those bars and do those sort of things, or are you pretty much in lockdown like the rest of us? Unfortunately, not able to go to those bars, but don't worry, I'm still working away on Soviet espionage. No, you're quite right. That was great fun. That was a couple of years ago, wasn't it, when the world was... Innocent and COVID-free. It seems like a different age. It was a different age, but it's certainly strange, isn't it? But anyway, James, good to see you. Good to hear from you again. Glad to be here. Well, now we can do it virtually and share it with the world from the pub to history hit. That's right. Silver linings. Silver linings, isn't it? Now, since then, you've been delving into a new project on the history of Soviet espionage. Because on the World Wars, we've spoken a lot about how when we take the history of the Cold War back, it doesn't start in 1945. It starts even earlier. You can take it back to the political wranglings around Operation Dragoon in 1944 and Churchill trying to vie with Stalin as they move through Europe. Or you can see Stalin's moves militarily like a chessboard at places like Bornholm, where he sat there squatting on a Danish island for 11 months as he was playing a political game. And in your work, you take this even further back, because when did the Soviet Union really start spying on its allies? 
Well, that's a great question. And uh, you're quite right. The book I'm working on is called Spies, The Long Cold War, Britain, America and Russian Intelligence. And my argument in it is that actually the Soviet Union started spying on Britain and the US much, much earlier than traditionally thought. In fact, in the 1920s, really right from the outset of the creation of the Soviet Union and its first intelligence service, the Cheka, which went into various different names over the coming decades, but had the same functions throughout. And it was, even though its name was different, it was the, called the KGB. And this was created six weeks after the October Revolution. And as we now can see from Soviet archives that I've been using and Eastern Bloc archives for this book, its tentacles stretched into Western Europe and the United States from the 1920s. Before America and the Soviet Union had diplomatic relations, the Soviet Union had deep cover so-called illegal spies based in the US, in Washington, D.C., in New York, under front organizations that were supposedly facilitating trade between the two countries, but were in fact front organizations for Soviet espionage. Soviet espionage directed at acquiring as much American military secrets and industrial secrets as possible, all part of the Soviet Union's ideological conflict with the Western powers in which war of some kind, conflict of some kind was, according to their Marxist reading, inevitable. And therefore, the Soviet Union needed as much technology, scientific and technical intelligence as possible in order to build up its reserves for this ensuing conflict. So that meant, as I said, acquiring as many secrets belonging to the greatest imperial power at the time, Britain, and then increasingly in the 1920s and 30s, the US. It involved, for example, the Cheka, later known as the OGPU, let's just call it the KGB, had the same functions throughout the KGB and the overlooked side of Soviet intelligence, the GRU, military intelligence, sending deep cover illegal intelligence officers posing as students to leading US universities like MIT here in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where they acquired as much intelligence on industrial secrets as possible and funneled that back to the Soviet Union, back to the Kremlin. This was happening, the first known example I've come across is in the 1920s and happened considerably in the 1930s. In fact, when we look at it this way, the first Soviet spy ring of any significance wasn't in Cambridge, England, as we often think of the Cambridge spies, it was in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So is what you're saying here that spies, espionage, are a pivotal foundational point of the Soviet Union. They are an arm of their foreign policy and their national security. They are a key element to what makes the Soviet Union what it is and what makes it secure. That's absolutely right. That The Soviet secret police, the Cheka, was the sword and the shield of the Soviet Communist Party, the shield to defend against enemies, and the sword to smite its foes. And this was integral from the outset. As you just said, defend the regime as its primary focus. And this continued for the seven decades of the Soviet Union's existence. And then to engage in underground warfare with its ideological enemies, primarily Britain in the 1920s and 30s, and then the United States during the Second World War and in the post-war years. All right, so... Let's take us into this history. Take us through those final stage of the interwar period and into the Second World War. 
What are the key victories for the Soviet Union over the Allies during this period? What are their wins? Well, first of all, I mean, it has to be said that they were essentially attacking the, certainly the United States. They were pushing in an open door. Although it beggars belief, the United States, the US government did not have a dedicated independent foreign intelligence service before the Second World War. So they, of course, had the FBI. The FBI's overwhelming focus in the 1920s and early 1930s was on law and order and not on counter-espionage. This meant, really, the greatest triumph that Soviet espionage had during the Second World War was stealing the uh, secrets to the atomic bomb. And this started off actually earlier than a lot of histories think. We know from Soviet records that the Kremlin was targeting atomic research as early as 1938 in Britain, and that when the British government devised their atom bomb project, and then that got wrapped up into the US project, the Manhattan Project, the Soviet Union had at least three key agents inside the Manhattan Project. This meant, to cut a very long story short, that the Soviet Union's later atom bomb, when it detonated its first atom bomb in the post-war years, it was an exact replica of the atomic bomb that the Allies had dropped in 1945 on Japan. Soviet atomic espionage greatly sped up the Soviet atom bomb project by stealing secrets from inside the Manhattan Project. They avoided wrong turns that researchers there had taken. They saved millions, if not billions, in terms of research and development. Literally, one of the atom spies in the Manhattan Project, Klaus Fuchs, provided the plans for the bomb detonated in the deserts of New Mexico and then on Japan. So this is clearly essential for the Soviet atom bomb project to have in the post-war years. But the history goes that we had Truman dropping that information bomb on Stalin, the surprise about the US had this new special weapon of immeasurable force that was going to change the world and change the power dynamics of the post-war world. One of the ideas behind Hiroshima and Nagasaki is that you drop those bombs as a warning to Stalin. But what you're saying is actually the Soviet Union and the Kremlin knew for a very long time, from the 1930s, that a lot of this was going on and just what was coming their way. You're absolutely right. Stalin, certainly at Potsdam, where Truman briefed Stalin on the development of this extraordinary new weapon, what we find is that in the files that have been released in the British Foreign Office, the Permanent Undersecretary's files, there's a memo of where Clement Attlee, the new British Prime Minister, writes to Churchill after Potsdam and said, Uncle Joe really didn't seem that surprised when Truman told him about the new atom bomb. Well, of course he didn't, because it's absolutely correct, because Uncle Joe knew about this really from the outset. He was well-placed to see how the British decision in 1942 to build an atomic bomb, then got wrapped up into the American decision, that the British Tube Alloys Project got folded into that. In fact, Uncle Joe knew about the atom bomb project before President Truman, who was not briefed on it until he was made president in 1945. So this was, understandably, when we see it from hindsight, the great revelation in Potsdam was really Stalin saying, yeah, tell me something I don't know. 
he knew more about the atom bomb project than the US incoming president. This is where writing about intelligence and espionage is good fun. That's what I do. I enjoy my subject. But it's not just about spies and spying. It can have profound implications on international relations. And the Soviet atom spies are an extraordinary example of just that, of where espionage can make a difference historically. Now, of course, the Soviet Union historians are quite right to point out that the Soviet Union would have developed its own atom bomb anyway. But what espionage in the Manhattan Project did was to speed up its ability to develop its own nuclear project. I remember going through the archives in the Library of Congress and through President Truman's letters to Clark Eichelberger at the UN, his first representative, and the idea that he really believed that there would be one united world around the atom bomb and that this could take place at the UN. There were movements at this time. I remember reading Einstein's papers and Stillard, the idea that there had to be one world united or there'd be none at all. But what you're saying here is from your papers and your research is that there's a whole other narrative here because Stalin was well on the road to the bomb much earlier than we first thought. Well, it's even worse than that, I'm afraid, that the creation of the UN, the organising conference, where the UN, as you said, the post-war years would be defined by this new body, the United Nations. The UN organising conference in San Francisco in 1945 was presided over by, I'm afraid, a Soviet agent, Alger Hiss, and the US delegation had in it a senior representative from the Treasury, Harry Dexter White, who was also a Soviet agent. That's a short way of saying that actually Stalin, the Kremlin, was extraordinarily well-placed about each of the post-war big geopolitical strategic developments in defending the West from the Soviet Union. We can now see from Soviet archives that Stalin was well-briefed on all of these big milestones. Churchill's Iron Curtain speech, the creation of NATO. He was extraordinarily well-briefed in each of these from his spies in the West, in the US and in the British governments. The most famous of which are the Cambridge spies recruited into British intelligence during the war but who really provided extraordinary intelligence about British and the US atomic bomb projects in the post-war years. And then, as I said, from within the US State Department and within the British Foreign Office about exactly this realignment from war to Cold War. So I'm afraid that when I read history books talking about the post-war settlement of the onset of the Cold War, if you look at it from the Stalin's perspective, using the intelligence he was provided with, this was not exactly a great surprise of what was happening at each of these huge milestones. So that really makes the onset of the Cold War look very different. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. McCarthyism often gets a bad name, and rightly so, for the amount of extremes that it brought into U.S. politics and the idea of a red scare and infiltration of the U.S. government with key figures. But was he justified? Is there a rewriting that needs to happen of history here? Because it sounds like that at all levels, there were people who were double agents or agents that were just so convincing and so masterful at their craft that they were able to go undetected and change global politics. So McCarthyism, it was hysterical and dangerous, what he said. McCarthy was a conspiracist, and a dangerous conspiracist at that. He made groundless accusations against people and destroyed entirely innocent people's careers and livelihoods. However, the underlying issue that he was talking about, Soviet espionage and Soviet subversion in Western governments, was very real. I think there's a direct parallel with what a lot of people are talking about today of the new Cold War between the United States and China. And there's an important lesson for Western governments to avoid repeating the same mistakes as McCarthyism. It was actually true what he was saying about the high number of Soviet agents inside the US government. We now know from the Venona decrypts, the series of decrypts of Soviet communications sent between the US and Moscow during the war, that about 250 Americans spied for the Soviet Union during the war. Every major branch of Roosevelt's administration was penetrated by Soviet intelligence. America's first ever spy agency, wartime spy agency, the Office of Strategic Services, was thoroughly penetrated. It was probably the most penetrated agency ever in history. Its director, the OSS director, William Wilde Bill Donovan, his right-hand man, his personal assistant, was a Soviet agent. The number of Soviet agents inside the Office of Strategic Services provided a firehose of information to the Kremlin. What McCarthy said was hysterical and wrong in the people that he accused, but it wasn't coming from nowhere. If America and Britain and the United States had been actually transparent and forthcoming about their decrypts in the post-war years, this would have actually made Americans understand differently the nature of American communism and American history in the post-war years. Obviously, the British and US governments couldn't disclose that they had broken decrypts 
from Soviet communications. They didn't want to admit that they had done that. But the tragedy of the tale, it seems to me, is that in 1951-52, they knew that the Venona decrypts, that's to say the British and American efforts to decrypt Soviet communications, they knew that that secret, that London and Washington had achieved these code-breaking successes, that secret had itself been disclosed to Moscow. So actually preventing that secret coming out on security grounds, obvious security grounds, but actually the horse had bolted. Moscow already knew that. They knew this from suspicions about Kim Philby and another Soviet agent actually working on the decrypts. So actually they could have, it seems to me by the mid-1950s, certainly the 1960s, disclosed that these decrypts, these telegrams, revealed the nature of Soviet espionage and its links with the American Communist Party, that the American Communist Party was working hand in glove with Moscow before the war, during the war and after the war, that the American Communist Party was acting as a talent spotter for Soviet espionage, and that literally decades of debate within America about the guilt of people such as Julius and Ethel Rosenberg could have been avoided. Both agents are named in telegrams. Julius and Ethel Rosenberg are named in these Soviet documents. The US government couldn't disclose that, didn't disclose that in court at the time, but it's now looking at the Venona decrypts. You really can't argue with the fact that they were Soviet agents. That doesn't mean, of course, I should hasten to add that it's correct that they were executed, but certainly their guilt cannot any longer be in doubt. As I said, the futility of this is that London and Washington knew that their secret had already been disclosed. So why didn't they disclose this to the American public? And it seems to me, to bring this back to contemporary overtones between America and China, Chinese espionage today is very real. America is facing an onslaught of it, particularly at universities. In fact, China and the Chinese intelligence services are copying the playbook of the old Soviet period by deploying deep cover illegals posing as students. They're setting up front organizations within the US, but we need to be careful about separating. We need to make sure that we have facts and not fiction. That is not to say that the overwhelming majority of Chinese Americans and Chinese nationals are involved in Chinese espionage. So we need to be very careful at this point about repeating a, another McCarthyite red scare about China and its intelligence operations. Chinese espionage is real. Chinese subversion is real. But that doesn't mean that it's of the grotesque proportions that we find on some commentary. So China is a leader in this game today, but the Soviets are the original spy masters. And one thing about intelligence history is that it's full of colourful figures. So who is it that we really need to know about in this history that you're writing? Great question, James. Who should we know about? Well, it seems to me that on the 75th anniversary, we should really know more about a Soviet defector called Igor Gazenko, who defected right at the end of the Second World War, September 1945. He defected in Canada, in Ottawa, where he was stationed at the Soviet embassy. And he brought with him a series of Soviet communications that revealed the extent to which the Soviet Union had been spying on its wartime allies, Canada, the US and Britain. 
And this wasn't just the kind of thing that all states, all governments do against each other of trying to collect a little bit of intelligence here. This was a systematic clandestine attack with its primary target to acquire intelligence on the Western British and American atom bomb. It spawned a series of counter-espionage investigations and prosecutions on both sides of the Atlantic as agents that Kuzenko's documents revealed were tracked down, identified, and in some cases prosecuted. Kuzenko has been called the man who started the Cold War, but I see that rather differently, as you probably have picked up by now, that actually Kuzenko, when he defected, merely revealed what had already been going on during the Second World War and even earlier. It also, the files that have been declassified and released on Kuzenko really read almost like a spy thriller. We find in the declassified British intelligence records about Kuzenko that MI6, Britain's foreign intelligence service, was highly involved in his case. The person who was leading the MI6 investigation into this Soviet defector was none other than Kim Philby, himself a Soviet agent. In other words, the person that was driving Britain's foreign intelligence investigation into a Soviet defector was himself a Soviet spy. Needless to say, we find in the files that Philby did everything that he could to try to sabotage British and American investigations into Kazenko. He provided the Kremlin with step-by-step investigations about their investigations into the agents that Guzenko revealed. But really the important thing is that this wasn't just revelations that took place on the level of counter-espionage. It actually had profound geopolitical consequences in the post-war years. We can now see from British records that it shaped Clement Attlee's government's response to the Soviet Union. Truman was in many ways still denying the problem, but was being pushed very hard, particularly by the British Foreign Secretary Ernest Bevan, to take seriously the threat posed by the Soviet Union and what was at its bleeding edge, Soviet espionage. So this wasn't just relegated to spies and spying. It had real-time impact on statecraft as the Cold War set in. So hang on, this went both ways. This isn't just information leaking out of British and American departments and agencies back to the Soviet Union, but this is infiltration, inception deep into these agencies to feed it back and shape policy. That's exactly right. In particular, the person that I mentioned before, Kim Philby, a Cambridge graduate who was recruited into the, let's call it the KGB, in the pre-war years, He had outstanding academics. He went to my old college in Cambridge. (laughs) He then um, joined the civil service, joined the foreign office, joined in particular Britain's Foreign Intelligence Service, MI6. Philby managed in the middle of the Second World War to get himself to be appointed the head of the department in MI6 that was eyeing up the future Soviet threat. This was called Section 9 in MI6 in charge of Soviet communism and counter-espionage. In other words, the person that was at the helm of Britain's foreign intelligence attack on the Soviet Union was himself a Soviet spy. I mean, one of his colleagues in the Foreign Office, one of Philby's colleagues, quite rightly wrote after the war, the history 
of espionage records few, if any, similar masterstrokes. It ensured at one stroke that all of the major strategic decisions about the Soviet Union in terms of intelligence were known to the Kremlin. It's quite staggering. Even though the story has been told several times, the files that are coming out today still reveal the depths to which Philby and his other agents inside the British government, the damage that they were able to inflict on British and broadly Western statecraft as the Cold War set in. It really is a shocking history because it shows the importance of just a few well-placed, intelligent people with nefarious intent can change the fortunes and futures of nations. And that, if anything else, is a pertinent reminder of some of the threats that are faced today. But I can't wait to read more about this as you dig deep into the archives and unearth this secret history. Where can people read more about this, Calder? Well, I'm quite active on Twitter, so you can follow me first and foremost there. My book will come out in 2022. I'm going to write it all next year. I've got several articles that I'm publishing at the moment. One article that I'm particularly interested in is I have done a what's called a social network analysis, which is a new type of technology, data mining technology that is used by the FBI and other intelligence agencies today. I have applied these new techniques, social network analysis, to old declassified documents concerning the Cambridge Five to reveal people that were at the centre of their social network who have not previously been on any radar up until now. So the article is called Old Cases and New Technologies, a Social Network Analysis of the Five Cambridge Spies, and it will be it's under peer review and it will be coming out soon, but I'm particularly excited about that. You are always welcome on the World Wars. And people can follow you, like you say, on Twitter at Calder underscore Walton. Calder, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, James. Look forward to having another conversation soon. Yeah, beers sometime soon, let's hope. (laughs) In person, that sounds good. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland 
further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.